Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. We're in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 175, recorded on February the 15th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on NeedyPintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Haney, what does container apps and vnets mean? Well, we talked about containers, I think it was in the previous episode, and and we went kind of to the root of talking about Kubernetes service, Azure Kubernetes service. And well, Azure container apps is one way to run your containerized applications on Azure. And how the Azure container apps is structured is that it actually r- does run on Azure Kubernetes service, and then it has some open source projects that it also leverages. But what it does, it takes away the management layer and really the overhead that one might have on the management plane. But the one thing to note about this is that it was uh, kind of announced at the previous Ignite, so it means that it's not as mature as, for example, AKS. And for example, uh, it is now that we have gotten this virtual network integration for um, Azure container apps just recently to have, have, I think the network configuration is kind of some of the basic functionalities that any service needs to have. And so this has just come to this particular service. So what it enables you to do is to link link your container apps in a virtual network. And when you say link your, your container apps in a virtual network, does that mean that it's it's kind of a service endpoint or does it mean like private link or not, not, none of the above? None of the above. Uh, it kind of actually goes more into the direction of how, for example, um, you configure API management with a virtual network. So you either configure it in internal mode or in external mode. And if you have it in internal mode, you get an internal load balancer for your Azure container apps or the environment. And if you, on the other hand, uh, set it in external mode, then you get an internet accessible IP. And then you do, of course, choose like what is your virtual network that you want to link it into. You give it two subnets. One of them is the control plane subnet, and the other one is the subnet where your actual applications then run in. So there's kind of three different aspects that you need to take into consideration. Okay, fair enough. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. How did you do before this? There was no virtual network configuration. So it was super secure. You you couldn't connect to anything. Your containers were just running around <laughs> in the cloud. <laughs> I think the thing was that you just had public endpoints for your Azure container ah. apps, and that's yeah. what you accessed it through. Yeah. Okay. And now we can have this deployed into your subnets and either have the internal or an external uh, access point to the entire environment. Yeah. And then, then you can... Yeah allow your containers to access other things or you can access the containers from the internal network as well. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. we, we explained something that even I understood in the end. Oh, we'll sort that. Don't worry. 
So when um, the the reorg of Microsoft was done, the people that used to run the Power BI side of things are now running the Synapse side of things. And one of the things that they brought with them was the the monthly updates, uh, the blog stuff. And just the other day, on February the 1st, uh, Savine Reddy, one of the PMs, um, posted a top five quick tips for Azure Synapse Analytics. And it's it's exactly what it says on the team, five quick tips. And one of the tips that I, I definitely like is the uh, serverless queries for performance. So a very, very quick walkthrough of, of serverless. I can have a file in a data lake, it, it just a, a parquet file in data lake. And I can query that through serverless uh, SQL, meaning that I just basically write a SQL statement and that's going to read the file from the data lake and give me the results, right? There is a bit of a gotcha there. Um, it, it's not strange. And if you actually bother to read the documentation, it's going to tell you that Parquet doesn't really handle strings. Or let me rephrase, Parquet handles strings just fine, but it doesn't keep track of the size of the string. So serverless will always go with 4,000 characters. And this is probably not going to be an issue. But I, I had a conversation with Katharina Wilhelmsen actually today about performance in, in serverless SQL. And she very quickly whipped up a test case that showed that, yeah, you're looking at, in, instead of a second, you're looking at 0.2 of a second running with a reasonably set um, column size. So that that's mm-hmm. one of the, the good points that you can find in this these uh, five tips. And another tip is, how do you pay for serverless SQL? Well, you pay per terabyte, right? But did you know that you can actually set a workspace budget limit so you can't do some enormous query and pay through the nose because you suddenly just read the entire internet through the the service <laughs> endpoint? Also kind of a, oh crap, that's a good thing to have kind of, kind of a piece of information. So yeah, definitely go look it up because I, I really like those those tips. And finally, there was an update that the export uh, PBI to file API is now generally available. And this is a bit of an interesting one because it's it's a, a it's an API to export Power BI reports to files. And why would you want to use this? Well, you can either do, as it says in, in the, the blog, send to print or email attachment. Now, this is a bit of a two-edged sword for Microsoft. And this has been a, a difficult journey because if, if you have this, why would you need to pay for a lot of expensive um, licenses, for instance? Well, they sorted that by only allowing this from premium or embedded workspaces. This is not a PPU feature as far as I can tell, only from premium. So you can't have one user with a PPU license, uh, which is dirt cheap in in comparison, and just do all the the exports that you need. Now you need to have this in either an an A SKU or a P SKU. I have a request. I might send it to uh, 
podcast at kneedeepintech.com later on, together with all the other requests from <laughs> Does our Does anybody dear. actually read that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I Absolutely. think Simon reads it, so he yeah. can send his himself an email. <laughs> That's my monthly test again email. But I have a request. Because we have spoken about this. Yeah, but couldn't I just print screen the report and send it off to somewhere? Yeah, it wouldn't be interactive, but still. I would love to hear from an organization that have implemented Power BI and and how their employees are actually consuming the data. So hearing from someone that have gone all the length of implementing Power BI, implementing everything fantastic you're talking about, and where also they have users that consume this data through Power BI. Because I would really like to know that experience and how they've made it available and and what the users find valuable and appealing with it. Yeah, and and that's a great uh, great ask. And um, I, I need to plug my own user group because yeah. the next meetup is going to be exactly that where cool. H&M uh, are going to be talking about cool. their journey with Power BI and what they did. So uh, for sure, we, we have that on the user group, but I'd, uh, I'll talk to them and maybe we can get them on, on as guests and we can discuss that as well. When is your next meetup and where is it? It's in March and it is in Stockholm. It will probably be on the 3rd, um, but we'll see. Cool. Then I might even join you. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. We have a topic about Azure Bastion. Have you used it? Yes. Either of you. Yeah. Um, Did you like it? <laughs> I, I like the idea, but I didn't like the price tag. <laughs> How about you, Simon? I, I do think that it is something you should use. If you, for whatever reason, need RDP or SSH access to a VM, it's worth mm-hmm. the cost, honestly, because yeah. it, it removes other challenges with using RDP and SSH. But it isn't the best user experience, though. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would say no. I've never liked using Azure Pastian myself, but it is actually a nice service because it is kind of that jump box as a service for for your users. You don't have to set up any jump box infrastructure in place or allow any specific, uh, put any specific openings in your firewall to set it all up. You just have this bastion service that then allows you to connect to your virtual machines from the internet. And the thing has been that to use bastion, you have had to use it through the browser. And that brings some limitations. For example, you cannot copy files over from your laptop to the virtual machine or vice versa. And, you know, working in a browser is a little, I don't know, it's a little weird. (laughs) I don't know if it's just me, but I've always found it a little clumsy in a way. But now we have the Azure Bastion native client support that has come in, in uh, public preview. And so you can use your RDP client or SSH client and connect with those. You do need to run some Azure CLI commands to get it functioning, etc. But it's it's not many steps and then you're good to go. And of course, that will then allow you to copy over files 
one way or the other between your laptop and and a virtual machine and then you get to use that native experience that you might be used to in the on-premise environment. So essentially turning Bastion into a properly secure endpoint for your RDP session. Yeah. Well. 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 If you can transfer a file, I would be a bit hesitant. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I, I do think it's 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 gets rid of that straight in RDP port openings. It gets rid of a bunch of things in terms of creden- credentials moving around and networking configuration. So it is a fantastic yeah. option. Do you know if you're able to control the the file transfers? So could you turn it off by policy or something like that? Uh, because I would definitely see how this could be used in a malicious way mm. as well. And that you would trust the bastion to be secure, but you would would be able to exfiltrate and also inject data inside of a VM that is supposed to supposed to be secure. But it's a fantastic service. Sorry to be a party pooper. <laughs> Yeah, but but it's it's good to have like somebody who knows what the implications are for also in that sense because for me it's just like oh that makes life easier. <laughs> but but then from the security perspective it it's of course something different. From the security's perspective everything sucks. <laughs> oh, we have had that discussion. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I wanted to also comment on the price tag a little bit. So, of course, like if you have just a few virtual machines, the price is high com- in comparison. But then if you have like multiple VNets and a hub and spoke and all that, then you can configure the bastion so that it's shared. So kind of the more you have VMs, the less you pay for it as well. In, like in pro- proportionally, I guess. Yeah. And in, in, in many ways, that's that's Azure for you. If you're doing things in, in singletons, well, each part is going to be expensive. But as you start to grow and, and have a complex infrastructure, suddenly the, the nice-to-haves are pretty darn nice-to-have and not that expensive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and you, we can just count on all those services like it's Azure Firewall, Bastion, uh, Azure AD um, directory services, things like that that they are expensive if you're doing labs or if you're a small mm. business. But as soon as you reach a critical mass of infrastructure in Azure, it isn't that expensive in comparison to purchasing a full remote, secure remote desktop solution on-prem or yeah, buying exactly. a firewall or something like that. The one who says that Azure or any public cloud is cheap, that's not true at all. <laughs> because you pay for what you consume. It's like saying that candy is expensive, but it's all dependent on how much candy you buy. Then if you prefer Godiva Mm. chocolate or Cloetta chocolate, just to be local patriot here, that's up to you. You get 100 grams of chocolate regardless. Should we move on? That might have been one of the worst... (laughs) comparisons in in recent history but uh, yeah okay um yeah it please. took me a while to follow what was happening here yeah but i caught yeah. up eventually so, so, simon take take your chocolate and go go to linux please it is that linux mint oh for 
there are tons of chocolate references within the Linux world as well. But now this is a fantastic news item that we have been speaking about a lot of times and now it's finally here. We have uh, the preview, public preview of Linux support in conditional access. It, I haven't been able to find the exact clients that are supported but you're able to target Linux machines in conditional access, which I find to be absolutely fantastic and something we have been looking out for for a very long time. Finally, we can have specific conditional access rules for Linux and not having to bundle them together with everything else. So a a fantastic achievement by the conditional access team and something that I will help my customers implement straight away. So this might be a stupid question, but how does conditional access work on the client? Is there a daemon on on the Windows machine that has a communication with conditional access? Or how does it work? It's web requests. So it gathers a ton of information when you try to access something, and it will gather information. And experts, correct me here, but when you do the web request, or the request to the application you're trying to access, it will actually gather information from your operating system and such and evaluate that from the client. You have other indicators such as compliance, which is gets from Intune. You can have identity protection scores from Azure Active Directory, and it aggregates all of these signals and then gives you a number of policies that apply to you. But from the endpoint, it will gather it from the web request. And that is why you can spoof an operating system by just changing how it emulates in the browser. So that's why you need to think through your configurations and ensure that you have covered those. That's why we up until now, as an example, must have had a block rule for everything that you haven't configured because otherwise it would just change to an unsupported operating system in your browser mm. and it would bypass conditional access. That's sneaky. Yeah, and you wouldn't imagine how many customers I find with inappropriate conditional access rules. And it's like, I do this Zero? and I'm... Wait. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, we have MFA for everyone. Yeah, you have MFA if this very unlikely situation happens. I had one of those customers just the other week. They had a setup of conditional access. And in practice, it only enforced MFA when a managed device were internal of their network. So the absolute opposite of what they wanted which meant anyone on the outside could go in without MFA and anyone on the inside had MFA when they had a Hmm. compliant device, which is very common. Well done. Yeah, so let's just say that the partner that configured that have some explanation to do. But isn't that always or often the case where you, you kind of come in with your preconceptions? You know something. But do you know enough not to screw up? A wonderful case in point is, again, the the SQL Data Warehouse or the dedicated pools in Azure Synapse. They are expensive. They are extremely powerful, but they are expensive, right? So you want to have maximum performance for the, the dollars you put in. 
So here's the funny thing. What does nine out of 10 people do? Well, they create or use the admin user. We do it in Azure SQL. We do it in, in, in Windows because it's one user that's always there. Now, if you do that in SQL Data Warehouse, you're going to find out the hard way that the admin user is actually in the smallest workload class, meaning that on a good day, you have between six and a half and 25% of the available power. And it's only going to be 25 if you have a one hell of a data warehouse. So it's probably going to be sub 10%. I had a client that had real issues with loading and they were, they were livid. I mean, they, they buy a lot of stuff and it is crap. And I go, yeah, you might want to create a specific load users and wham, things were running very well. So that's what happens when you come with your preconceptions. I think that's also, do you know why they have decided to do that? Because that's a fantastic way of ensuring that you use an appropriate account rather than the built-in admin. I don't know, but yeah, I, I like it. Tactic. Uh-oh, Simon had an idea. Yeah, I, we don't know if it's good yet. But if someone would be happy to write a proactive remediation in Intune that we're looking at if the built-in admin account have been used and when it does lower the performance scheme or something or just start to load the CPU with something to just decrease performance, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Something else that's fantastic, we have a new version of Sumit and that will actually tie in very well with my focus segment later on. If you aren't using Sumit, please do. And it does apply when you do virtual presentations as well, because things tend to get small when you present and share your screen. Increase or decrease resolution and use Sumit and take it slow and it will be a lot better. Um, I think the main new feature that uh, Katarina pointed out were anti, and now I will mess up the pronunciation, analyzing? Yes, you did. Anti-aliasing. Aliasing. <laughs> that sounds like something you work with. Anti-aliasing. <laughs> now I feel like I'm learning spells at Hogwarts. Hogwarts. AA. <laughs> you sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the AA thing is new and that creates much smoother arrows and drawings in general when you zoom it. So please be considerate with whoever is watching your presentations, regardless if it's, if it's on a big screen or if it's on a shared desktop. So take, taking that sentence out of context, the AA thing makes the arrows smoother. Right. Could we use that as the name of this episode? I don't think we could, but we kind of <laughs> could do stickers to rival Samilaiho's admin stickers. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> so would he, probably. Yeah. And then the last news item. Getting back to business here. I'm not a big fan of smart cards. I think they limit the hardware you can use it's cumbersome and 
just complex to manage and puts a huge requirement on your internal PKI solutions and such. But they are secure. And there is a lot of organizations around the globe, especially in the Nordics, that are using them heavily. And up until now, if you wanted to have some kind of authentication towards Azure AD with a smart card, you have had to have ADFS. And ADFS is worse than my pronunciation of English words, so please don't use it. It's a horrific thing. That's pretty bad. Thing. It is. It does It does a, a number of things fantastically well, and it, it can't be replaced in all cases. But for authenticating towards Azure AD, please use other things than ADFS. And now, with the support or the public preview of Azure AD certificate-based authentication, you can use your smart cards to authenticate towards Azure AD. And I think that is a great addition. It will greatly improve security for a lot of organizations that are using smart cards today. And I do think that I, I'm working with um, a lot of thin clients and very high security environments where smart cards are heavily used. They might not be the ones that authenticate to Azure AD, but if you use uh, Azure Virtual Desktop or Citrix or something like that, it's a great addition. So it's also fantastic to see that Azure AD are getting more and more support for protocols and that the Azure AD and AD team are helping out in getting away from ADFS for Azure AD authentication. So try that out. You have it available in, in your authentication mechanisms now. So try it. And if you have smart cards, you can continue to use them now. But do consider the challenges with using the actual smart card form factor. Moving back to Sumit then, we, we all tend to stay and stand on stages virtual or soon, possibly on a stage very close to whoever is listening to this and present. And apart from all of us using Sumit, more or less, we have also sent in our fair share of abstracts and session proposals to conferences, and we have also reviewed a number of them for other conferences. So today I wanted to talk about conferences and the future of that, of them, and also focus on some things that we touched on the last in the last episode, which is namely called for content. And I know that, no surprise there, Alexander have views on it and is usually very good at telling us about them. But I'm also very interested in learning from Haney and, and what's your views on how to send in abstracts and so on and how you do when you write yours. So so I let's start with the call for content. And we'll start from I would say the organizer's point of view, actually. I'm handle creating or managing a conference now and we just closed our call for content and the sessions will be introduced uh, today or tomorrow uh, being Tuesday or Wednesday then and I don't know if this is due to COVID or if it's something else but I find that the quality of abstracts have gone down that the speakers are still fantastic the topics in themselves are great 
But a lot of speakers just don't spend the time to write a proper abstract. So two questions to you. What are you looking for when you are reviewing proposals? And as an organizer, do you think that you should reach out to people and ask them, could you rewrite this? Or should they get to blame themselves for not doing the work appropriately the first time? So I, I can start uh, because I'm, I'm, I've also done um, abstract reviews very recently. And I don't, I don't have enough experience to say that it's gone down, but I see that it is widely ranging between excellent and utterly useless. And that, that kind of drives the answer to the second question. If, if it is a, a poorly written abstract, but I find the, the idea behind it and the abstract itself to be interesting, enticing, then I might reach out and, and say, mm, okay, maybe you're not that experienced. Uh, we have some comments. Would you, would you be uh, prepared to rewrite your abstract? If it is someone, and, and I think this is more common, actually, if it, it is someone who is so well-established, well-established, that they <laughs> just don't care, then I have zero, absolutely zero interest in doing anything with that abstract. And that is going in the trash. Um, I've, I've seen that a couple of times and that, that makes me sad. When someone who is an excellent speaker, who's been at this for so long, literally just go, I'm X or you know who I am. Gone. Bye-bye. That's not what I'm looking for in, in an abstract. But uh, there has been a number of abstract recommendations through the years. And just the other week, Benedict Jagere, uh, who's now a, a PM at Microsoft, put up a great blog post on this. So there, there are some, um, some resources out there. But I also think that with the influx of new speakers, which the, the, is one of the good things with the pandemic, um, not, not everyone has really figured out how to write good abstracts. Yeah. And, well, I actually don't have experience in reviewing any abstracts yet. Uh, I haven't been in that position. So I don't know exactly what goes on, on in there and haven't been able to see other abstracts. But of course, going to events, you see other abstracts and you read them and you kind of view them. And so, of course, I, I don't know about the level, whether it has changed or it hasn't. Uh, but uh, writing abstracts, I have noticed that it is quite difficult <laughs> to write abstracts. You'd think it's super easy and fast and you just put something together and it's perfect. But it is really a skill that one has to kind of accumulate. And especially like when I was starting out, it would have been wonderful to receive some feedback on my abstracts to know like why it wasn't good. But I also understand when people are organizing events it can be really hectic and busy and there's not that time to actually give feedback to people. But I, again, come from the teaching background. So I'm like, well, like if you do an uh, exam or something or you write an essay, you normally get some feedback on how to make it better. So it's a bit difficult if you never get any feedback for your abstracts and then you are not getting into events 
how are you supposed to make that better so you can get in? I just had an idea. Since just about everyone are using Sessionize, and if you're not using Sessionize, why aren't you using Sessionize? What if you kind of set into a system that in the call for content, you have basically a toggle box that says, do you, would you like uh, to have a, a, um, a response or would you like to have a, a um, feedback on your, your abstracts, yes or no? Now, that might mean that everybody in their cat is going to go, yes, please. I don't think that's going to be the case. I, I think it's going to be a, a relatively small number of people who are actually eagerly looking for some decent feedback. And that might be a, a, a good thing for, for the organizers to do. Yeah, and I, I fully agree. And uh, that was actually part of my next question as well. Uh, but first, I have to say that the persons I have reached out to and also actually that reached out to me in, in former events to ask for feedback, all of them have, have been fantastic in taking that feedback and creating something better. We had some fantastic changes to abstracts that I'm really grateful for because that really brought out the essence of what we wanted from those sessions. And I had people in, in previous conferences that reached out to me and asked why weren't I accepted and wanted that feedback and appreciated that I took the time to provide that. And and I do think that that goes into all of this, how to handle both the people that get accepted, but more so the ones that get declined. And I know, speaking about my former conference, that we were very late in sending out the cancellations, but I do think we should have that decency this day and age to decline people as early as we possibly can. And like you said, Alexander, also explain if they want to, why we didn't accept their sessions. Is there anything else you as an event organizer should think of when you accept or decline sessions? So I, I want to add on one thing. Um, mm -hmm. There is no excuse, absolutely no excuse whatsoever for not sending out a decline. Um, it, it, it's easy in Sessionize. It's literally just declined, bang, there's going to be an email. Sorry, you were not selected. Easy peasy. If, if you don't, that's lazy and that's poor form. So do it. Another reason for using Sessionize. And while I would like to have a reason for being declined, as a speaker, I am not entitled to one. It's a nice to have, but it's not something that I can require. And I, I want to really make that yeah. that clear that it's always up to the, the organizers to choose. And how they choose, that's up to them. If they want to explain themselves, that's up to them. What, what do you expect when you send in proposals, Haney? Both in terms of when you get accepted and when you get declined. Well, I, I do expect to get some kind of decline message if I am declined. That doesn't always happen. And uh, I, I feel like I've been somehow uh, kind of... Uh, fortunate in the way I got into speaking that I I got into a, a newcomer track at Data Grill and then the world stopped and I actually didn't go there and then I then I came through this uh, new stars of data event and I've had very good success after that in actually getting into events so I feel like super fortunate about that but in before I actually got rolling I did have 
a chance to submit to some events that I didn't get into. And it's it's oftentimes, especially if you're a new speaker, it feels a bit like, well, what could I do differently? And when you do not know the people, you don't really feel necessarily comfortable to reach out to anybody and hey, ask, well, could you give some feedback on my abstracts? Because like all these people are these really super cool people who are amazing speakers and why would they want to give me feedback? Well, yeah, I know that's my point of view, but I'm kind of guessing that other new speakers might be feeling the same. And that's how I felt kind of before <laughs> starting to know people. And and so at that point, I didn't know what I should be doing differently or whether I needed to do anything differently or whether it was just because I haven't hadn't been speaking anywhere that it's hard to get chosen or what was it. But yeah, from the organizer point of view, I expect at least to get a decline. Uh, it would be nice to have like presented that, hey, if you would like to get feedback, reach out to a specific person to make it easier for the people who don't know the organizers necessarily directly, whether it's through sessionize or whatever format, but to have that option. And I, I, I got a very good tip actually from from Daniel, the, the guy that I'm I'm helping to select uh, sessions for uh, Data Saturday in, in Stockholm. He, he told me that take a look at your submissions through the Sessionize admin view. And I did. And I didn't really, okay, well, what am I looking at? And then I saw it. I, I put everything in, in just a block of text. And that's exactly what the reviewers see, a, a, basically a small wall of text. Just by adding a few paragraphs, adding in a, a, a blank line, it made the whole thing 10 times easier to read and thus much more palatable for the people selecting it. So I from I, I took away uh, from that that I, I need to rework the uh, what my, my um, abstracts look like. Not necessarily the wording, but what they look like. So that's the top tip, I'd say. The next topic I wanted to talk about, have we, I include myself, been spoiled by free events during COVID? Do we think that people will be as interested in paying for physical, hybrid, or virtual event as we were prior to COVID? Or do we expect to get a lot of quality content for free? And you would love to see Alexander's face at this point because he's <laughs> bursting with things to say. Something. Yeah. It's... It's a great question, and I'm very happy you asked it uh, because it's it's very very a, a complex question, and I do know that the number of events that we've had during the pandemic they have skyrocketed. Everybody and their cat realized that oh there there's cool stuff to de- be be done as as an organizer. Um, it's a, it's a cool thing to organize your own conference. Most of them had done an excellent job, but it's not that hard if I'm honest, to organize an online conference. It's not easy, but it's not that hard. Now, with the world reopening, I am seeing several examples where conferences are requiring you to do new sessions, new content. And it it kind of irks me to, to a rather large degree that... If you're 
a an event that is paid, but you're not paying your your speakers, but you're requiring them to just put in new things because nobody wants to pay to see the same content that is always already available on YouTube. That pisses me off. And and to put it in very blunt words, screw you, pay me to do new things. And this got me thinking to when I started. And I would have done anything for anyone to get into a conference. And the more established I've become, the more I realize how unsustainable that is. Yeah, for the community and not, not just for you. No, no, for the, for the community. This is the, the established way of, of doing things. It's literally working for free. And that may or may not be okay. I'm not putting any, any value in that. But these are the things that I'm, I'm starting to see crop up as the, the paid events come back. And to, to actually answer your question, yes, I think the, the paid events are going to come back. Um, and I think that the online events are going to decline. They're, they're going to uh, decrease is the word I'm looking for very, very quickly. Maybe it, it's going to be a dip and then it's going to come back. Uh, but I, I can't see this number of virtual events being being sustainable. No. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of along the same lines. Well, there were many things there, so I don't know if I'm on the same line with everything, but with uh, virtual and physical events, that part. <laughs> so I, I also think that people will be very interested to go to paid live events. It's going to feel more kind of fresh and new again after such a long break. I think it will, though, pull back then from the interest of uh, paid virtual events when we again have these paid physical events. But of course, it depends on the price and, you know, everything. And it's always different when you have a physical event, you get to meet people. And that is kind of part of the entire experience that makes it so much different than a virtual event. Even with kind of certain quite cool platforms for virtual events, you don't quite get the same feeling of interaction with people and meeting new people and just getting to grab somebody by the sleeve on the corridor. And of course, we're still kind of in the midway that uh, not everybody will be traveling yet and attending conferences live. So we'll see how fast it progresses. But uh, I think it's definitely getting that way again. And yeah, I, I think I might be still on the phase of a newish speaker where I'm just like happy to go to uh, any event. And though um, my view on the whole uh, new content, content aspect that you brought up is that, well, uh, I'm going to submit the sessions that I am comfortable about if I know it's a paid event. I want them to be sessions that I've done maybe once or twice so that I have a few practice runs under the belt because they're not going to be as good on the very first go. Even if I practice them, it's always different when you do it in front of an audience. So it's actually, I think, a benefit for the organizers if the people have done that particular session maybe once. And at least most speakers that I know, they never run the exact same session twice. 
they always tweak something based on the run that they've done before. So it's not like you're going to find exactly the same session for free online. And also it's going to be different when there's people in the room and you get to hear it live than just watching a video on YouTube. And and I think that that is very true. I, I agree totally. And, and Simon, you said, are we spoiled for? And yes, we are. And I would also argue that the free... All the, the free conferences, great as they may be, they also spoil in some ways the quality because we do get rehash. I know people that has done like 40 virtual events in, in two weeks, and that is going to be verbatim the exact same stuff every time. So, yeah, with fewer events, be them online or or live doesn't really matter but with fewer events there are only so many so many rehashes that you you essentially can do so it's it's um it's a two-edged sword i'd say and um speaking about events we have some upcoming events we do march the second and i won't mention the name or the time rather <laughs> the name is rather good if you get the swedish azure virtual desktop user group have their next meetup where Mr. T-Bone will be presenting on the latest developments for Windows 365 and they will also have an additional session that has not been announced yet but do tune in to the Swedish Azure Virtual Desktop User Group on March the 2nd and I will just remind you that I'm arranging a conference together with Patrick Köhler, the AVD TechFest. You can still sign up. And if anyone wants discount codes for the event, please reach out to podcast at needypintech.com. Indeed. And while we're at it, the Data Saturday Stockholm registrations are open. So they start, they, they opened just the other day and it's going to be on May the 20, uh, May the 21th. Uh, so May the 21st. And with a pre-day of uh, May the 20th. So definitely come. With um, me. Yes. Ooh. I was about to yeah. say that because one person in this, this rambling is hosting a pre-day. So you want to say yeah. anything about that? Yeah, I will be doing a full day on using Terraform to manage your data platform solution on Azure. Really excited about it. So definitely come um, meet us, at least some of us, in Stockholm on May the 21st. It would be kind of cool to have Simon there uh, with huge eyes and going, what, what, what is everybody talking about? Um, kind of a um, petting zoo for data people. Yeah, come learn Terraform. I'm signing up as we speak. For real. <laughs> Excellent. Well, this was a great uh, discussion. Uh, thank you so much for bringing it on, on Simon, because... Um, bringing it up uh, because this this as we were talking about before we started recording we, we can probably talk about these things for days and if we were to bring in other uh, organizers we could extend that two weeks thank you so much for tuning in thank you for, so much for listening we'll be back in a week or so and until then have a good one bye 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at 
podcast at nidipotech.com. <laughs>